Hey, everybody. Today, we have Richard Sirocher uh, in our podcast today. Richard, thank you for joining our podcast. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about Richard's background. Uh, Richard actually is a director of uh, outbound product management at Google right now. Uh, he's been there almost for two years. Uh, before that, Richard was uh, at a senior director uh, at VMware and Pivotal. And, you know, you work in telecommunication company like CenturyLink. And you've got, two. I'm looking at your LinkedIn, you've got 12 other experiences. So uh, <laughs> you've, you've done a lot, obviously, Richard, and you've all, uh, you have published, uh, I know, I think 15 plus courses on Pluralsight, and you've done that for 10 years. Uh, so you have a lot of knowledge in product ownership, product management, building products. So we're really excited to kind of pick your brain in some of these topics, Richard. Um, so welcome to the show, Richard, why don't you share with us? What have you been up to these days? Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's always fun to talk about these things. Yeah. I'm not really great at anything. I just do a lot of stuff. So as we look at my, my experience, I'm an expert at nothing, but, uh, I don't know. Sometimes that mixed experience is good. It gives us all different perspective. And so my job at Google is really to help make sure that we communicate well out from what are we doing in our products. So I cover things like containers and GKE and serverless and dev tools. And so my product outbound product management team works with the PMs, make sure that we kind of amplify the right message to the market. We work with marketing and field teams and things like that. And at the same time, we listen to a lot of market feedback. I talk to analysts all the time and press and other folks and customers and try to learn what, what's the market think of the products and then pull that back into our strategy. So it's a fun role to get to sit between both, but I've done product marketing for a number of years, did product management for a few years, did product uh, ownership and architecture and dev and uh, all kinds of wild stuff. So, you know, yeah, I, I like to learn. That's why I teach Pluralsight courses. I figure I, if I have to teach something, I have to know it first. So at least it forces me to, to learn topics and things like that. So between that and writing books and, and pretending to be a decent father to kids, I keep myself busy. Wow. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. Also a book and, and you're also a father. Yeah. So you've got a lot going on, uh, Richard. So let's dive into, so today's uh, topic, we're going to, we're going to dive into the product ownership. Um, so mm -hmm. let's just start by how do you see the role of a product owner and how have you seen this evolve? You know, you've been in the industry for you know a while, right? So what is the role of a product owner uh, right now to you? Hmm. Yeah, when I first got hired as a product owner back in, what was it, 2012, I had absolutely no idea what that job was. I was fortunate that, you know, it was a startup. It was it was a group where there really wasn't much product management. Yeah, it was very engineering-led. And so, you know, we brought in some folks, including uh, one of my mentors, Jim Newkirk, who was actually one of the creators of Agile and, and Scrum and things like that. And so being able to learn firsthand of like, what does it mean to not just, you know, write a requirement spec and chuck it over a wall somewhere and then check back in a quarter or two and see what happened, but actually sit physically with an engineering counterpart and, you know, not just manage a backlog, but write a good user story and yeah. sit with an engineer and figure out like, Hey, how do I make sure I don't leak design into this? I'm also just saying like, here's an outcome I'm after. Mm -hmm. And then make sure that whatever comes back is value and then use that, but also talk to customers and say, Hey, did this work? Can we yeah. feed this back into our next cycle? And so for me, really appreciating that a product owner was, an intense stakeholder in the work. It wasn't an arm's yeah. length participant. It wasn't someone yeah. who kind of sat in a different floor of the building. No, you should be pairing arguably yeah. with an engineer and getting just hopefully really rapid feedback. Because look, if it wasn't for Agile, I don't think you need the idea of a product owner. If we were mm -hmm. shipping every three years, that was the old days. I was in those projects, those big waterfall projects where you did requirements for nine months, you coded for a few months, and you did a bunch of integration testing for twice as long. And in that world, you are just chucking specs around. You're writing mm. some requirements almost in the abstract. But mm -hmm. in this world of like, to me, the biggest changes for software teams is moving to small batches. Mm -hmm. Like small batch delivery is just a fundamental, like philosophical change in how you ship software. It's, I am learning quickly. I'm releasing quickly. I'm cutting up giant epic kind of goals into sort of like micro releases to learn, 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 learn. And in that model, I don't see how you don't have someone let's call them a product owner mm -hmm. who is intimately aware of what the customer's kind of after, but can also mm -hmm. do a brilliant job of translating that into a, a, a workable story. And also frankly has a bit of the backbone to prioritize well 
because yeah. everyone wants to move certain things up and some other person's chirping in your ear like this has to be more important or this is harder. And so yeah. you have to have a little courage. Yeah. You have to be a good communicator. Absolutely. And then you have to have enough, I think, technical chops too to be able to sit with an engineer and, and effectively kind of understand and translate what actually needs to happen and prove that what they built is the right thing. And then wash, rinse, repeat do it again and again and again. So I think it's a very underrated role, but if yes. it's done well, it, it's probably the thing that unlocks good software for most companies. Yeah, no, you, you cover it beautifully. Um, it's a very, uh, it's a demanding job. It's a really rewarding job and it, mm -hmm. it, you know, you, you have to be technical. There's a lot of element of leadership prioritization, which is you know so important. And we're going to go into some of these topics, but um, my other question is how do you differentiate uh, between product ownership and product management? Yeah. And I know you've, uh, you know, when you and I first started talking, you were referring to a, a talk I did at the Agile Alliance a number of years back on this topic. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely when I was, you know, that part of my life, I was coming out of leading, you know, VP of product management for this, uh, startup, which got acquired by CenturyLink. We did that for a couple of years. We kind of scaled DevOps from 40 people to 400. And mm -hmm. we had, you know, 30 something product teams. Each product team had a product owner. And so my worldview was very colored by that. Mm. I still agree with, I think, everything I mostly said back then. But yeah. my idea at the time of product management was different. So, yeah. you know, I, I still like, I think I quoted in that uh, piece or in yeah. that presentation, I still like Melissa Perry's definition, like product owner is a role, product manager is the job. Mm -hmm. And so you may have product managers who say, look, my job is to set, you know, figure out the vision for this product, understand the goals, maybe even do a little bit of the sort of business ops of the product. Like, hey, how, what's the business metrics? How's the growth? Mm -hmm. What's the customer mm -hmm. adoption like? And at the same time, you may be on your team also playing the role of partnering with your eng lead and figuring out, okay, for this sprint, for this release, for this quarter, whatever it is, here are our goals. Here's the sort of things we have to accomplish. Here's the user journeys or user stories, and then kind of maybe dip back into your product manager job in some cases and talk to customers and work with other teams on your go-to-market launch and things like that. So I've worked in places where they're separate and you have a product owner and then you have someone else who sits somewhere as a product manager. My personal experience, I'd have a great experience with that because the product managers were a little too far removed from the product owner work and each team had their own roadmaps and they weren't in sync and it's like, yeah. does this person talk to customers, but the product owner talks to engineers? Well, that's kind of broken because you yeah. really should have the product owner should be able to talk to customers, talk yeah. to stakeholders internally. They should be talking to engineers, right? I think Marty Kagan just said that recently. I thought it was brilliant. So you can't ever lose that, right? A product yeah. owner needs to still be sitting there readily talking to customers, readily talking to your internal teams that care about your product and regularly talking to engineers. And that's kind of how Google does that. We really don't have a product owner per se. We have product managers who play that role mm -hmm. on their team kind of as that functions needed, but they're also kind of running their product. Yeah. And so you don't accidentally end up with a split. Now I'm in outbound product management, which breaks the paradigm even further. Yeah. Now you have another sort of person in role who also does a lot of customer stuff, does a lot of go to market stuff, Yeah. things like that. So each org will be different. I think for some companies you might have the process where you need dedicated product owners, especially project by project, product by product. Mm -hmm. You may have a product management sort of function potentially. I don't believe that's a hierarchy, like product mm -hmm. owners report to product managers. I'm not sure that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. But you might have some cases where, look, the product manager is the person who does the work, who does the product owner work, who does some PM work. And you might be at companies where you have product managers and outbound product managers. So yeah. there's going to be different paradigms. I think the important thing is who's going to make sure that you don't add a lot of friction <laughs> between mm -hmm. what are we trying to accomplish and how does that get broken into work that engineers can work on? Like yeah. as long as you don't add friction to that and mess up that process, I don't care what you call people. Yeah. And I'm thinking about maybe, uh, maybe to kind of make it a little bit uh, real for people. Like right now yeah. you're at Google, people are probably very interested. Like, okay, how does Google do, do it? And and maybe you can contrast that with um, Pivotal or, you know, CenturyLink, how they did it uh, from like, you know, their, their agile teams, like how are they set up? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Pivotal was um, similar to what we kind of had done at CenturyLink where you had, you know, feature teams, product teams, they were long lived, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. wasn't just a general pool of people who swarm on a feature and then go off and do something else. You have long lived teams. I'm a big believer in that, that DevOps style team mm -hmm. structure, product team structure. And it doesn't mean the people stay there forever, mm -hmm. but it means that team exists for a long time, right? That yeah. team should probably live as long as the product does. People are going to come and go. That's fine. 
Yeah. But the idea that you have institutional knowledge in the team, you have people who aren't just prioritizing a release because mm-hmm. like I've worked in enterprises where after V1, we all just scattered. Yeah. And then to get V2 done, you had to fund a new project and you had to get yes. a new thing. And that was three years from now. And so what does that mean you do? That means that V1 is so overstuffed with features and it's always late because no one thinks you'll ever get another shot at this. <laughs> that's what broke that first, right? That first, like the 40 years of software was that you just jammed everything into those one big release because you never thought you'd do it again. Yeah. And now in a feature team and a product team, how about I just keep delivering value? And yeah. if I'm a stakeholder, I don't freak out if my feature, my goal doesn't happen this month. It's going to yeah. happen next month. Yeah. It'll happen the month after. Like I'm building trust. And Absolutely. so kind of Pivotal had the same structure. You have long-lived feature teams. You have a product owner sort of person. You have balanced teams. We're big fans at, at Pivotal of this balanced team approach. So that feature team should be somewhat self-sufficient. You have a UX person. Mm-hmm. You have some sort of designer. Mm-hmm. You have some sort of product manager type person. And you have mm-hmm. engineers. Yeah. And for the most part, that team should be able to do everything. I should be able to do user research. I should be mm-hmm. able to do my product prioritization. I right. should be able to do the eng work, probably some aspect of deployment. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there, there's no bottlenecks. And there's always yeah. integrations with other things you got to play with. So yeah. we kind of had that balanced team approach at Google. I don't know. We're really well known as a product company. I've yeah. been reading some of the historical books on how Google works, which is a great book, kind of some of the background for our product mindset and product thinking. Yeah. You might be surprised. I mean, we don't have, there's not one methodology everybody follows here. Now, for the most part, there's a lot of commonality. That's what there's I've heard. Some, yeah. yeah, there's some teams that have very, very close sort of product manager, product owner, and end relationships. There's others mm-hmm. that the product manager kind of writes the PRD, the requirements document, and kind of works with the eng to agree on kind of what gets worked on. And then they step back a bit and eng kind of cranks through and then finishes and you do some acceptance testing and you're good. There's other teams where it's a little closer collaboration and you're more pairing regularly between the product person and the eng person. Cloud's weird because in, in one hand, we have some products that ship quarterly. We have mm-hmm. other products that ship whenever they're done. And I love mm-hmm. that personally. Like yeah. I love the idea that it's almost continuous planning, continuous mm-hmm. release. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the cloudy model. It's not like, here's the quarterly release of the cloud. What's that mean? That makes zero sense. There's no quarterly release of Google Cloud. It's just, we're always yes. updating. Yes. There's no yeah. version number of Google Cloud. That makes no sense. So everything's kind of updating. I think that sort of model is is great for engineers too, because it means I'm not just waiting, bored, waiting for my release cycle. I forget what I coded three months ago. And now I have yeah. to go back and debug it. Nope. I build, I ship. And one of the biggest things I've learned at, at Google, which is different than all the other places I've worked is in a company mm-hmm. like this, you get data quicker. Yeah. And so the harder part for a product owner, a product manager is how do you sift through? I mean, I ship a feature and five minutes later I have telemetry. Yeah. That's, a, I mean, that's bonkers. Like I'm used to shipping software at Pivotal where a lot of customers took two years to, to install the latest version. Yes. I might not know for two years if you liked my feature, like that's yes. how do I plan that way? Like that's really tough yeah. versus now I can know five minutes later, did you check that box? Did yeah. you get some value from that? And so as a product owner, product manager, I have to be really good at identifying good data sources, adding telemetry to code, knowing how to find some signal in the noise because mm-hmm. I could just get drowned in data points, yes. which is the one that matters, which is the one yes. that's showing the right metric, what's the right user trend. And so, you know, product managers here definitely have to be good with data. They definitely have to be good at kind of writing, you know, good requirements sort of documents with good critical user journeys. We do anchor on jobs to be done. We anchor on critical user journeys. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you talk about an end to end, turn that into some sort of activities that get done. And then engineers crank on that. We do acceptance testing and, and ship all that, but each one's a little different, but each time the goals are the same. Are we yeah. building for the most part persona driven user centric software that mm-hmm. we can quickly verify if we did the right thing. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. So uh, let's, let's go into what the role of a product ownership and what does good product ownership look like? And, and the first thing I want to dive into that you shared is like, what, what is, what is the style of leadership when product owners leading a team? Uh, What does Mm. that look like? Yeah. I mean, I'm interested even in what you've seen in some certain cases of that, like what good and, and good and bad look like for teams. I mean, a lot of cases, the product owner is, a team leader, right? You're not a passive member of the group. Yeah. You're, you're setting some vision. You're, you know, the hard part for many people is 
I, I'd always I'd be interested in your answer to this. Yeah. Sometimes I'll ask people during interviews, is the is the product manager or product owner the CEO of the product? And it's a very polarizing question because yeah. some people will violently disagree. Like product owner is not a CEO. They don't have, you know, management responsibility. They don't have a P&L. They're, nope. Other people will answer like, yeah, you're kind of setting direction. You set the goals. You're, you're that visionary. I, I'm not sure which way I fall. I don't think you're the CEO, although I, I like asking the question to see people's yeah. mindset. You know, I'm interested in your take on that as well. But I think that either, regardless of whether you're the CEO or not, it doesn't matter you are leading often through influence, not authority. Yes. You don't have to listen to a product owner. Now, if you've got a good culture and you have a very strong product and engineering leadership relationship, which to yeah. me is the underrated part of a good product org, is how well did the product leader and the eng leader get along? Yes. If that's contentious, you are not in a good org. Like that's yeah. a tough place to be. You need someone who has your back up there. And, you know, I've worked at places where, you know, especially at, at the tier three century link where the, the product lead and the eng lead were just like interchangeable in a good way. Yeah, like yeah. the same page. If an engineer comes up and goes, Hey, I don't want to work on that. And they would say, did the product person say we should do it? Yeah. Then do it. Yeah. And it was great to have that sort of backup versus like, I can go tattle to my executive and get something changed. Like, no, they should be on the same page. Yeah. So a good product owner leads through influence. They don't have direct authority. They don't have a management staff of people. The engineers don't report to them. No. But you are leading often by showing that you have their back. And for me, yes. again, that was a very underrated aspect. That if you're a good product owner, the engineers think you are covering for them in a good way, that you're protecting their time, that you're not just adding a new feature because someone asked and say, yeah, the engineers will figure it out. Yeah, that's you destroy credibility instantly when you yes. do that. Instead, yes. it's the sure. Would you like to add a feature? Awesome. Which one am I going to take out? Well, yeah. I don't want to take one out. Cool. You'll yeah. wait till the next release then. And the engineers will go like, that person's got me. Like yeah. they're not trying to burn me out. They're looking out for my team. So a good leader is kind of respecting their team. They're kind of making sure they're managing a tight scope. They're representing them well. Outbound to that, they're taking their feedback. You're not a dictator. If the engineering team goes, hey, look. Our technical debt's about to drown us. If you add one more feature, I'm going to lose my mind. Yes. A terrible product owner hears that and goes, okay, here's five more features. Suck it up. Yes. A good product owner says, okay, I hear you. How about we do at least every other sprint, like 40% technical debt time? And we're going to pay down bugs and we're going to do the right sort of work. Like, how do we find a great balance here? Because you are not the dictator. Your goal is to satisfy all the stakeholders. That's your engineers. That's your customers. That's the internal teams. So for me, those are some things that stand out, but I'm, I'm interested in your take as well. Yeah, no, I'm hundred percent. Like, you know, you, you are a leader and, you know, you cannot just tell what to do. I mean, you have a lot of data, right? As a product owner, you have customer data, how customers are, you have, you, you know, the stakeholders. So you have a lot of that perspective that you can bring. And, you know, even if somebody is a new product owner, if they can kind of bring that and, you know, just show that and also care about the team, care about, you know, their work, what they're doing, what their challenges are. I mean, obviously, you know, trust will be built and there will be influence. But yes, in no way, you know, developers are supposed to kind of report to you or listen to you. Yeah, your point on bringing data, I, some of my favorite, I mean, I had a really opinionated engineering team that was both scary at times because they were really good and they were big personalities and taller than me. So that also yeah. added to it. But it was kind of an intimidating group because they were just really good. And yes. so I realized like, I'm not gonna bully this team around anyway, because no. that's not my personality. But yeah. there's cases where we're like, we don't wanna work on this. We don't think anyone uses it. And when I could say like, okay, well, here's five customers who I've talked yeah. to. Each yeah. one has said, this would be huge. Yes. Shoot. Okay, maybe we should do it. Yeah, like I'm not trying to argue with you of like, I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. What do our customers want? Yeah. What is the data telling us? Hey, or you think we should do this? I don't. Okay, the data shows no one's used this feature in six months. Maybe maybe we actually don't do it, right? Okay. Yes. So as a, like, it's not about bullying people. It's about saying, what's good data points? What are yeah. customer stories? What are you adding to the equation as a product owner? Yeah. Not just your opinions. Are you bringing yes. in customers to talk to engineers and say, hey, yeah. can, you just, can we learn from you? What's going on? Can I bring in market feedback? Can I bring in yeah. just other stuff? What are you doing to help an engineer get better context versus yes. just, you know, like, hey, dummy, go do your work. That never yeah. works. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, one of the things the engineering team is watching you is like, hey, how are you going to protect? Because other people, other influencers are going to come and say, like, do this, do this. Right. Are you speaking yeah. again, like speaking, speaking up on behalf of them? And, you mm -hmm. know, they're, they're watching. And, you know, if they see like, hey, you care, 
you know, you're going to have the respect, right? Um, and are you available, right? I mean, that for me, I know, especially now, co-location is tough. Mm. Not everyone's in an office right now. We have a lot more remote teams. Yeah. All those things can be good. I'm still personally biased towards in-person engagements. It's just something I found that's very successful. And so mm. if you're not physically together, are you at least digitally available? Like, does yes. the team feel like, hey, we can only seem to get the product owner at the start of a sprint Yes. And at the end, when they're yelling at us because we're late, or are you available on chat whenever an engineer goes like, hey, I don't totally understand if I should do A or B, what's going to really hit the spirit of this user story? Good. You're right there. Jump on a call. We're doing a video chat. Like, yeah, here's some trade offs. Like you have to 100%. be present. Yes. 100%. And so, so you, you, that, that can be tricky if you don't, if you have product owners far away in the ivory tower and you're, you're not staying close to that. Yeah. So like, you know, we're, we're both saying like, you know, product owners should show up like they should be there. They should make an attempt to like talk to people in, in this point, maybe, you know, co-location is not possible, but Hey, are they setting up one-on-ones or like, you know, just team huddles or like getting to know, are they trying, right? Cause people can tell when somebody's actually trying to build that relationship. That's right. And, and so you're, you know, showing up, I don't know. I think that's a secret to life anyway, but showing up, you know, when I had to earn, cause I was, I was remote when I first became a product mm -hmm. owner, the whole team was in Bellevue in the Washington, Seattle area. And I was down in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, how am I going to build a relationship with this team? How are they going to trust me? Cause they've never had a product manager in their life. They just built mm -hmm. whatever the founder said. So yeah. now I'm this idiot coming in, telling them what to work on. So how in the, how is this going to work? Yeah. And so I learned quickly, especially with a few folks who are a little, a little more grouchy was that I have to prove I've done the work first. So for, yeah. for example, if it was, I don't just tap a, an engineer on the shoulder saying, hey, the billing data the system's generating is wrong. Mm. No, it's not. Like, you're, you're an idiot. Get out of here. Say, so yeah. like, no. My, instead, I would come and go, hey, I've called the API five times. I've tried these edge cases. These are the results I'm getting. These don't look right. And I would, like, immediately it, it lowers the guard. Like, okay, this 100%. person tried. 100%. Like, they made an effort. They actually bringing me data. They're not just throwing out dumb questions. They did some work first. Like 100%. show up, do the work. And then that just earned so much trust that when I came with a question, they usually could assume I've tried this first. I've tried to answer yes. it. I've yes. tried it in the software. I've read the source code and maybe I can't do it all myself, but I could say, hey, why did we do this switch statement? Because it feels like we're missing a criteria. Oh yeah, maybe you're right. Or no, you're wrong. This was why. Awesome. But we're having like yes. a peer-like conversation versus like coming over the top or coming up as just a complete like, hey, I don't do any work. Just answer my questions for me. <laughs> Teach me everything. No, I mean, I, I remember as a, you know, when, when I was a new business analyst and I was thrown into this, you know, MasterCard project. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did is, you know, I come from engineering background and now suddenly I have to, you know, be in IT. But, you know, one of the things that I did is whenever I met there, first of all, you know, somebody gave me an advice, talk to the QA because they're quiet people, but they know end to end and all of this. So what I did is for every conversation, I actually talked to the QA, um, you know, learned, learn, gather data on how things work. Then I talked to the, another BA, another BA from another team. So every person I talked to, I was building up knowledge and people could just right. tell that I, I just didn't come there just to kind of take up their time. And I didn't want them to teach me everything. I prepared for each of the conversation and even for the new people, like that's, that's all they take. And they actually appreciated that because, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people don't do that. Um, so great point that you bring that attribute and that applies to in all levels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your points on QA, I mean, let alone like one of my best sources of input, like every Monday we would do a uh, kind of a feature review meeting. Yeah. And it was, what, what did people submit for features? And what was really important in that session was, so we'd invite the different, you know, whoever was on call that week, we'd invite, you know, the engineering lead, the other product lead for that area. But we'd also invite like the support staff mm. and the QA because we could get a feature that says, hey, so-and-so requested this. And I could go, that's dumb. I don't want to work on that. Yeah. The support person could say, I got four calls last week about that. Yeah. You better fix that. It makes it real. Yeah. I didn't even know that. So yeah. it was like, it's immediately, how are you bringing people in, right? How are you that connective tissue sometimes between marketing and support and field teams and whatever, and actually trying to pull that in? Again, that's good leadership. It's just, you know, again, one of the hardest parts of good product ownership or a lot of these positions and product managers is, can you, can you find some signal in the noise? Because there's a lot of data points and you have yes. to synthesize a lot of information down to make what comes down to like, do I do this thing or this thing? Like yeah. all these data points yes. really just comes down to helping you make some prioritization choices, maybe some feature decisions. Yeah, That's hard work. 
So as a product owner, how are you almost training yourself to, to listen really well, but then also be able to filter out information or summarize information? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like paying attention. I mean, there's a lot going on, but what are you paying attention to? So um, second thing is, you know, now we're talking about, you know, uh, leadership and engineering team. So let's look at like relationship with the engineering team. Like what are some best practices for building great relationship, working relationship with engineering teams? Yeah, you know, I'm, and again, you and I could disagree on this. I, I do believe that people with good product skills are portable. Like you don't have to stay in your domain. Like I could in theory be good at my job here in cloud and I could switch to YouTube and I'd probably do okay, even though I know nothing really about media. Now, what I don't believe is I could just rely on my generic product skills. So I think if you're gonna have a good relationship with the engineering team, you have to go deep in that domain. You I might not have it when that you get there. Yep, hundred percent. And that's fine. Like don't only hire people who know that domain, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I need to hire someone who's obsessed with learning it. And as long as right. that's okay, we're good. An engineer is going to look at somebody who looks like, hey, is this just a stepping stone for them? Or they even care about my product? Or are they just here to give me generic advice? Are you getting in the trenches with them? Are you learning the thing? And that takes work. It takes commitment. But to me, I don't think that's negotiable. Like, yes. I don't see how you can do it otherwise. So if you want a good relationship with engineers, show you care about their thing and genuinely. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, and you know, I talk to a lot of new product owners and, you know, I tell them, you have 40 hours, like. Every conversation is learning. You just have to go with the intention of learning and understanding people's work, people's life, how things are done. And, you know, it's, it's not like extra learning, you know, so when somebody's in a role, like again, right. you have to show up and look at data, look at what's happening, you know, who's being impacted. So, um, great. Yeah. So and at the same time, you had mentioned, you know, other, you mentioned earlier showing up, like, look, if you're going to work well with engineers, be at their standups, be at their code reviews, be at their demo days, be at their stuff, like show up, show that you just don't dip in again at the beginning to give them a bunch of requirements. And at the end to yell at them for being late, like, yeah, the show, like, no, I'm part of the team. I'm an extension of the team. Like we talked about earlier, I protect their time. I don't hide information from them. Like, look, it's about free flowing information. A bad product owner, again, just kind of dips in and out. They're not really looking out for the team. They probably manage up more than they kind of help the team stand out. So I don't know. I think engineers are smart bunch. Everybody's smart yeah. in this industry, but engineers can sniff out a self-serving product owner really quickly. They can tell. And, and, you know, when, when you were saying about showing up and doing all these things, so for, for people who are listening, oh, like this sounds, sounds like a lot of work. It's actually not because your life becomes much easier because engineers will make sure they will, you know, give you trouble if you're, if they can sense, like, so you don't actually care. Right. I've actually seen that. Um, so yeah, no, just like dogs can smell fear. I think engineers can smell uh, a <laughs> yeah. kind of nervous product owner. So you gotta, <laughs> yeah. but then at the same time, if you do it right, then the engineers become part of your advocacy team. So if you 100%. are like, you don't want to be in a feature, however teams do, you know, story points or figure out their backlog or figure out their sprints, mm -hmm. but you want to be in that meeting, not where it's like you versus 10 people. Mm. It should be like 10, 11 people discussing stuff. And yes. so if a PO says, hey, I think I should work on this. It's not like, all right, everyone's now going to yell at me. You want to know there's like three or four engineers here are going to be like, yeah, I love that idea. Let's yes. do that. And so you do that again with the trust and the relationship that this person has our best interest at heart. They're giving us fun stuff to work on. They're letting us pay down technical debt. Again, that's where that co-location is important, frankly. And if you can't be there physically, are you in their chat rooms? You better mm -hmm. be. Are you in yes. their Slack channel? What are they complaining about? Does this tool they use stink and it's yes. driving them nuts that every build gets broken because their CI suite is terrible? Yes. Okay, are you allocating time in the next release to swap it out? Are you yes. even offering that in the first yes. place without them even asking? Good Lord, you're going to be a hero. 100%. So are you listening to the point before, right? Are we just listening and paying attention and, and treating them as a, as a core constituency for you? hundred percent. So Richard, let's go into um, managing and sourcing backlog items. Like mm. where do these work come from? How do product owners do and how do they do it well? Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of bad ways to do it. It just, you know, is it the noisiest customer syndrome? Yes. And we all know like on one hand, we've all probably been there where look, there is a really important customer and you do have to do things for them. And that makes total sense. But yes. that also, if you're a good product owner, this is where it comes back to having courage and a little backbone you can accidentally create a product for one customer at some point and mm. realize like, oh my gosh, all we've done is make this really good for so-and-so. What if they left tomorrow? What did they I don't even know who us? our other customers are. And so 
are you sourcing it just from that? No. Are you listening to the salesperson who stomps in the room and goes, you have to ship this or else I can't close this deal? Again, maybe. Or you might say like, that's not strategically important to this platform here. Maybe we can do a half measure. Or how about you put me on the line with the customer and I can yeah. talk them through our roadmap. And that's probably actually not a deal closing problem. It's mm. just something we're talking about here. So yes. a good product owner is looking at customer data, of course. They are looking at, like we talked about in those feature review meetings, what does the support team say? Mm. What does that team who's getting support calls or that field engineer who's constantly on the in the trenches putting in software, putting in services or installing things, what do they deal with? Yeah. What's the market saying? Yeah. Right? Our competitors all missing something. And you're like, yes. Good goodness, how come no one supports this one idea? I yes. bet if we did this, let me test this. Maybe we'll do yes. a little MVP. Maybe we can actually carve out some new space. So it's not just people telling you what to do. Mm. It's mm. you as a product owner, product manager, thinking of things you should work on by understanding yes. the market, understanding things like that. So, you know, and then sometimes there's bugs, sometimes there's defects. We used to, uh, and this is probably a little too extreme, but if a bug didn't make it into the next release, we dropped it only because it meant if it wasn't important enough to do right now, mm. I'll wait till it comes up again. Now, yes. not everybody should do that. And that's an extreme circumstance, yeah. Yeah. but you don't want to look up and see, I have a thousand item bug database. It, at some point it's just stress. And it's like, oh gosh, there's this thing just weight on my shoulder. Like, do they matter? Is anyone complaining about them? If they are, how come you haven't fixed them? If no one's complaining, they get rid of them and they probably mm -hmm. don't matter. So mm -hmm. being kind of ruthless about not just having a thousand item backlog, but instead, like, you know, maintain a, a vision of what you want to accomplish. Yeah. But don't just build some giant wish list of things where you go back like, wow, this thing's been on the backlog for three years. Get rid of it. Yes. It doesn't matter. If you haven't done it by now, it doesn't matter. So how do you source, but also groom really well and say, yes. and make sure that that thing maintain is tight, that you're able to retire things quickly and then just have a long memory. So if something does come back in, you're like, oh, I remember we, we, we got rid of that a few months ago. Let's put that back in there and now move it to the top. So being good about sourcing it, not just with features, but with bugs, with, mm -hmm. you know, automation improvements, technical debt pay down, debt, yeah. some experimental stuff, right? Sometimes you as a product owner need to be looking out like three releases and I've had this happen to me where I'll put something in a sprint and someone will go, why am I building this? It's like, you'll see. Mm. And I'll explain why I'm not trying to be cryptic, yeah. Yeah. but that like, look, we have to do this first, which will then yeah. enable this. And then maybe three, four releases from now, that's when we get to light this thing up. So are mm -hmm. you, are you staging that? Are you foreshadowing a bit with some of that stuff? So it's not always instant gratification work either. Are you sourcing all kinds of things that set you up for the future? You, you have some strategy. You have, you're playing a game of chess, right? You're thinking a few mm -hmm. steps ahead and you know, engineering team is working hard to, you know, code the stuff that you have, but you know, that is, you know, product owner's role to be a little bit more strategic around like, how will this actually fit? Um, so I will, I will say on that one real quick though. So if your team, if you work on a scrum team that has like an on-call person, whether mm -hmm. they wear the virtual pager or whatever, and they're on call once a week, they're the one that handles yeah. defects and bugs. That yeah. person is an amazing source of backlog items because yes. they're the one who's actually dealing with stuff. So I could always tell every time <laughs> who tough. was on call because they were the ones submitting the automation problems. They were yes. the one getting paged on a Saturday, wasting yeah. three hours fixing something. And then I would get a bug or I get a feature request on Monday. Like, hey, we need better logging. Like, ah, I know why you did that. You spent yes. all week in troubleshooting. So they're a great source of input back to your engineering relationship. If you're listening to the engineers and they have a channel to help improve the stuff they're working on, you're going to build trust and you're probably going to build better software. hundred percent, hundred percent. So Richard, how do we, so going into uh, decomposing work. So what are some uh, best practices for decomposing and refining your backlog and decomposing your work? Yeah. I mean, it's tough stuff. Look, I mean, you and I can think in the goal of like, mm -hmm. Hey, we want to add this capability. We want to make mm -hmm. this thing possible. And like, that might be a big hairy thing where it's like, this is six months of work. I can't turn this into an eight hour, you know, a three story point or whatever. Like this is like a legit amount of work. Yes. How do I decompose this? And so I've seen multiple ways. And again, I think I talked about this in the, uh, the talk I had done years ago. And again, something my mentor, Jim Newkirk had kind of taught me was if you think of the way we do things in pieces, yeah. And if I just ship things in pieces where nothing is of value until I'm finished. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like building a bike and just building piece by piece. It's like, I, I have nothing until I put the final wheel on. It's a worthless, you know, mechanical device. That That's a way to go. But as we've all been in projects where funding changes, 
Priorities yes. change, staffing yes. changes, somebody leaves, and now you're sitting here with a pile of half-finished stuff that delivers zero <laughs> customer value. Yes. And so that's a tricky way to do it versus kind of almost vertical slicing through a problem and saying, or he would call it progressive refinement, this idea of like, I'm going to do part of it first and mm -hmm. maybe like an end-to-end -end flow. And if it's a feature and maybe it does a ton of stuff, I'm just going to do the basics first. And mm -hmm. it's enough where literally if I shipped it after one or two sprints, it's worth it. It's and feasible. even if for some reason the whole team imploded or something changed or staffing changed, like I could be done there. That's not great, but mm -hmm. it's value. Yes. And that's where I start looking at like, how do I, again, horizontal stack stuff in a traditional architecture. I'll have to build our compute tier and our data tier and our this tier and our UI tier. Cool. Until you've done UI tier, you have a worthless infrastructure. Like oh, nothing's right. worth it. Yes. Versus like, okay, I'm going to build this one kind of UI capability that now flexes a database, it flexes some core infrastructure, it flexes a messaging tier, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I could ship that. And now maybe I've tested the whole architecture, I've tested some stuff, I've delivered value, and now let me add the next slice, and the next slice, and the next slice. And mm -hmm. so I'm not building a puzzle anymore, I'm really just kind of refining an image and bringing it into more and more clarity. To me, that's such a better way, it's hard to do. Again, this is still not easy work. It's, this yeah, is still yeah. tricky work, but you have to sit there and look and go, how do I get value from this thing in every release and not have to wait until 13 sprints are done before someone sees value. So that's for me is sometimes just looking at the big picture, looking at seams, looking at user journeys. Can I start to carve up some of that and say that I don't have to deliver, you know, Hey, maybe my feature helps me do something with like one of our products where, you know, look, an Anthos can run on Amazon and run on Azure and run on this and run on that. Maybe the first multi-cloud release just runs on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And maybe that release doesn't have all the automation yet, but at least you can install it mm -hmm. and you can run it. Yes. Next release, sure, maybe you had an upgrade capability. Next mm -hmm. one after that, you had something else. And then eventually you also add Azure support. And then you do yes. the same with that. Now, at any point, if my VP had said, stop that, mm -hmm. I'd have something. It still works. And that probably yeah. still solves yeah, the first value of it. So I just try yeah. to look at where do I purposely find some seams where there's still value. If I ship something and nobody can use it because there's nothing there, like a you know, a banking app where all I can do is deposit money. Yeah. All right, come on. I got to be able to withdraw it or transfer it or something. You got to give me something. But maybe, hey, the thin slice there is just U.S. customers. Yeah. The thin slice there is an amount or like pick something that lets you scope this down, test it, see if it's worth it and flex the whole system. 100%. That, that, that's such a good value mindset and such a good learning mindset because every two weeks you're probably learning more about the customer, how they're using. And, you know, you might even get insights on how you would entirely do right. this thing. Right. So, um, about the, I actually heard you talk about your, your, your rule of, um, uh, splitting user story into like items that can be done in two days. Like talk to us about like that, that mindset. Yeah. I mean, it was, again, as, as I'd learned on that project and the team would kind of joke about it, but really any estimate beyond eight hours is a guess, you know, maybe 16, Anybody yeah. who says this is three weeks of work, it could be 12, it could be a day and a half. Like no one has any ability to estimate three weeks of work. Yeah. Like realistically. And that's why I've, you know, most of us bristled years ago at the traditional like project manager Gantt charts. Like, all right, here's the two-year project. Yeah. Somehow down to the day. Come on. It's wrong right now. Like immediately oh, it's wrong. Yes. So what are we doing? We're wasting time. So it was this idea of can you make everything two days or less, every at least user story. And again, that, that requires a lot of decomposition. And yeah. there's some things that won't fit that way. Yeah. But how can you continually say, I don't want to have any, you know, if I'm doing planning and planning poker, however you do story points, whatever, you know, nothing goes above an eight if eight is two days or whatever your counting system is. Mm -hmm. But that you scope the work down. If it's more than that, it's probably too big. And so how do you carve up? And again, it might be four stories that actually make up a bigger Thing you're accomplishing, but each one's around a couple of days of work. Mm -hmm. Because once you get to three, four, five, 12, 15, 20 days, you have no line of sight to that. Yes. Like, you know, it's a big enough problem that you just had to put a number on it to give yourself some breathing room. Yeah. I get it. But then that maybe means you go back and write better user stories. You don't actually start the work yet. So, yeah. Some of these are just even tactics for forcing you to think differently. Doesn't mean you won't still pick things that go for three days or 12 days or whatever. But yeah. can you at least say like, that's an exception? You know, and how do you force yourself down? Same with, frankly, sprint lengths, mm -hmm. right? Like we learned that, you know, we were doing month long sprints. 
Mm. It was fine. Yeah. But you could get things didn't hurt at one month that hurt at two weeks. I could spend five days on integration testing on a one month spread. I could three weeks of coding, give or take one week of that in a two week sprint. I cannot spend five days integration testing. So if something's busted in that process, now I got to fix it. Mm -hmm. So even as a PM with engineering's agreement, how do you keep maybe compressing certain things? Cause that puts pressure on things that maybe you got by with before. Hey, maybe it's a weird approval process. It takes three days. Can't take Mm -hmm. three days. If I have a four day sprint, shoot. Yes. So how do you kind of keep continuous improvement mindset Yeah. Uh, by, by sometimes shrinking how much time you have, you're finding the sort of things that weren't problems at length, but they are actually problems when you try to do it faster. hundred percent. No, that's, that's amazing. So uh, let's kind of go into running the running through sprints. Like what are some best practices for product owners uh, when they're running through the sprint? Yeah. Again, I've had good experiences with, uh, like if I was a product owner and I told the team, this is how much you need to get done. It never went well because <laughs> usually like I'm not the one doing the work. And in some cases I'm not factoring in other stuff. So for the most part, I liked purposely transferring responsibility to the team and saying, you tell me when this is enough work. Mm-hmm. And if they said, yep, we're full, that's what I got. Awesome. If you don't ship this, as not me, right? Because yeah, yeah. you said you, this was as much as you could get done. It's not that the stupid manager made me commit to this. Nope, nope. You agreed. And what that also created was some self-governance within the team. Yes. If the team was mm-hmm. falling behind, mm-hmm. there was some self-like peer pressure. Like, we got to step up. Like, we said we could get this done. Okay, mm-hmm. let's pair on this. Okay, do you need some help on this? And hey, you raise your hand if your thing falls behind by more than one day. Like, no suffering in silence for two weeks and then complaining. Like, mm. get on it because you're going to make us all look bad. Yes. So part of it was just like, hey, make sure as you're kind of agreeing to a sprint, picking up the right size, right? How are you constantly closing work? Frankly, we also wouldn't allow any person to be on more than one story at a time. Mm. So that you wouldn't necessarily have like, hey, here's a bunch of partial attention. Nope, mm-hmm. finish your thing. Yeah, It doesn't count until you've sat with QA or the person on the, or just a pair to run through a test, now yes. you're done. Now pick yes. up a new user story. Yeah. So just keep it tight. Keep your work in progress small, right? Yeah. Make sure that you haven't accidentally overcommitted or now you're a blocking function because you're on seven stories and you're not available to pair with it, whatever. So mm-hmm. one at a time, if you're stuck, then maybe we have a process problem because we should just be able to build it, test it, repeat, build it, test yeah. it. So that was also helpful. Just again, some have some of those tight rules. Yeah, no, no, that's, that really helps because, you know, sometimes, I mean, just even outside of development, you know, we end up doing a lot of stuff and sometimes stuff that's not in the priority and just like making sure like, you know, this is the goal, like let's not work on other stuff. And if you're working, it's okay. Let's reflect, like, let's kind of get those things out. And, you know, cause this is the commitment as a team that we're giving. Um, So, yeah. And then then the last piece of that is, again, we learned this too. I, I don't think, you're going to have a good time if you don't force your team to ship after the end of each release, a sprint. Mm. Because if you don't ship, what's really easy to do? Eh, let's just punt it. Let's roll it into the next one. Ah, yes. come on. Like if you have that fail safe, you're going to use it. Yes. Versus like, nope, we ship at the end of each release, wherever we are, get on the train. And if your thing yeah. can't make the train, even that's okay. We'll, we'll do a different branch and that'll make it into the next one. But there needs to be a sort of discipline and rhythm that says like we ship. And we ship what's ready. Like don't ship bad stuff. Yes. But if you allow yourself to say, hey, we just kind of ship when we're ready overall, right. you're never going to ship. Things are going to keep sliding around. The game change, the game entirely changes when there's like an actual shipment, right? Mm-hmm. And there's consequence and people play differently. So, right. um, yes. So um, um, meet, meeting involvement, Any anything comes to mind around like how, how, with stakeholders, with engineering team, yeah, customers, I mean, I think, you know, again, maybe controversial. I, I think that a, uh, a good OKR performance metric goal for every product owner is how much time did you allow your engineers to code? Mm. So if you found that you, your engineers coded only 50% of the time, because the rest was in design meetings, whatever, whatever, you're a bad product owner. And I mean, I'm being a little too edgy there, yes. but if your team's not spending 75, 80% of their time building value, if you're dragging them into a bunch of other stuff that's not net useful to them or great for their role, 
shame on you. Be a better product owner. So like, are you you using them really strategically? Look, if you need an engineer to join a customer meeting, and I do that now at Google, I'll bring engineers with me to meetings where it makes a ton of sense. Awesome. That's an amazing asset. And they should get that customer face time. But you also have to recognize that there's very few people in most companies who are the creators. There's mm-hmm. a lot of consumers, mm-hmm. right? Every company is like that, right? But the, the pool of people who actually build the value that the company sells, it's usually pretty small at most companies, isn't it? And the rest is, you know, HR and legal and processes and sales and all yes. really important. Yes. But I need to protect safely that group who actually builds the thing that gives us value. And so yes. how do I use meetings effectively? If I'm doing a sprint planning meeting, have I done pre-work? Have yes. I socialized some of my user stories potentially with the team first to go, if they want to all tell me that's a garbage story that we can't even estimate yet, let's yes. not waste four hours in a meeting debating it. What a waste of time that was. <laughs> yes. I should socialize that with a couple people first. And I've done that before, which is why I have the battle scars of, you know, like six hour planning meetings where there was a mutiny at the end. That was yes. a bad part on my part. I didn't do a good enough job vetting it. So I wasted half of their day when they should have been coding something. Like that was a terrible yes. part on my job. Yes. Uh, job on my part. So I'm trying to think about meetings, use them judiciously, try to be ruthless with where you need people and where you don't, and make sure that, again, you're just treating the value of everyone's time well. So, you know, there's good things like standups, there's good things like demo reviews, there's good things like even monthly reviews of certain business things and giving people context and Look, most people can't code eight hours a day, heads down. Like that's not that kind of job. It's still a creative job. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So you gotta give breathers. Mm-hmm. But just being um being attuned to the needs of the team. Absolutely. No. So let's talk about uh continuous improvement. So what are some um approach or best practices for um for continuous improvement? Yeah, I mean, arguably that's some of the best parts of of DevOps, of agile, of these ideas of that you should first of all, be hiring people who are never satisfied and not in the sort of like they're psychos who are just always mad about stuff, but that like you, people who don't just settle in going like good enough and good enough sometimes is okay. Like if you're constantly trying to improve everything, you're going to wear everybody out. So don't do that. But when you're looking at, yeah, how long should my sprint length be? What is, you know, are we, do we have one person who has to babysit the builds? Why why am I doing that? Shouldn't I just automate the build? Mm -hmm. Like, What am I doing? Just because we do it now doesn't mean that's the best way to do it. So am I soliciting feedback from the team? What keeps their satisfaction down? Mm. What job do they dread? Mm. How am I learning about those things? Am I improving process, right? Skills? Are you actually pausing in your team to even do education and learning days, especially Mm. for product owners? Like if you work with other POs, hopefully listening to your podcast, of course, but what are they doing to just improve their craft? Yes, We're not in here to just, we're not hamsters on a wheel. Yes. Like you got to pause and take a breather and like learn more stuff and dig into products. So are you improving personally? Are you mm-hmm. improving the processes you work in? Are you improving mm-hmm. the output of your software? Are you adding more yes. tests? Are you mm-hmm. adding different tests? Are you adding different ways to validate user behavior? So I think that's what makes this exciting. Otherwise this gets really repetitive. Yes. So, you know, how are you bringing this? And the other thing I've learned is I can't bring the same improvements to each job. Right. Because mm-hmm. each team's a little different, too. Yes. And you can't just come in as a new product owner. If you've done this before, go, here's my playbook. Here's how yes. everything goes. You yes. can't do that. And do that. Now, some yeah. things, but you also have to absorb how's the teamwork? What's our current tool chain? Who are our stakeholders? Context. How do we ship? And so mm-hmm. I've learned, and sometimes by mistake, that kind of my lessons learned are important, but I, don't, I can't apply the exact same playbook in each circumstance. So each team may improve differently. The skill sets may be different. You might come into a super technical engineering team where the continuous improvement might actually be on user design. Mm. It might be on, you know, other aspects of even automation if they were just really good coders. And so Mm -hmm. other teams know all that stuff, but they actually need to just up-level their actual, who knows, web service design skills. So all those things come into play. Product owners have a ton of areas they can improve themselves. Personally, as we've talked about, prioritization, industry knowledge, writing good stories, decomposition, So I think making that a core principle of the team that we are hopefully happy, but perpetually unsatisfied is a good mindset that how do we keep making things a little better so that we frankly enjoy our work? This should be fun. Yeah. It should be fun jobs. Like, and that seems kind of weird to say, because we all get paid a decent living to more or less enjoy work, hopefully, which a lot of people do not get to say that. So I feel very grateful for that. But 
okay, I get to enjoy my job if I do it right. So how about I do it right so I can really uh, have fun here? And as a product owner, how do I make sure my engineers don't leave? Because I have probably some talented people I work with. I want their job to be awesome. So I'm not constantly replacing them. So taking that as personal responsibility to keep improving is, I, I don't know, a fun growth opportunity. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and Richard, I had another question. So, um, so how do you think about prioritization, you know, not just in the story level, but like the initiative, like, cause you're now in like mm. in the portfolio of products, right? So I'm just curious about, yeah. you know, that's the main thing, right? What, what do you work on and how do you, uh, how do you know, how do you decide? So what are different frameworks you use? What's your mindset around prioritization? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's people who are smarter than me on the regular PM tools, like, hey, cost of delay and other good techniques for figuring out like, hey, if we don't do this thing now, what am I actually losing business wise? And some of that's going to be a guess because I, I can't guarantee the future. But mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of it's based on who are the stakeholders? What's my opportunity? Am I in maintenance mode or am I in growth mode? Mm. Like those are even a fundamental choice. If I'm maintaining a product, Mm-hmm. What are my priorities? Well, it's going to be around stability. Might even mm-hmm. be about trying to strip out costs so I can pass those savings on to my customer because I'm just kind of yes. maintaining them. It might be around even reducing the size of the team necessary, again, through automation. It might be all kinds of things around go to market more focused yeah. because, hey, the product's kind of done or the product's yeah. kind of stable. Let mm-hmm. me go ahead and prioritize kind of adoption, sales enablement, whatever. If I'm totally in growth mode, I'm probably thinking more about user research. I'm prioritizing yes. kind of new markets. I'm prioritizing mm-hmm. different personas going, we've never even sold to so-and-so before, built products for that person. Mm-hmm. How about we try that? And so, I don't know, I'm looking at what stage of life is my product? Am I beginning, middle, am I retiring it? Mm-hmm. Who are my stakeholders? Is this thing business critical? Like everyone's looking at me right now and I need a huge win. Yes. And so I need to think about what is a good impactful feature or am I an ancillary product that attaches? to a big bang product. Okay, then my goal should be, how am I prioritizing things that drive that product? And mm-hmm. that is a very tough ego thing because yes. we all want to think we're on the most important product. <laughs> and instead, when you can take a step back going, my success is really going to be, can I make this other product better? Mm. That is a hard thing sometimes for our ego, but frankly, I'm sure 90% of products are not the the first thing. They're the second thing or the third <laughs> thing. And that's okay, thing, yeah. right? So my priority should be, what am I building in this thing that maybe it even doesn't move more of my thing in this way, but it actually moves more of this thing. Mm-hmm. That's one. I don't know if product owners pay a ton of attention to all the time, but I'm thinking about that more now. Cause look, Google cloud has like 200 services. <laughs> maybe customers buy 10 of them that they really care about. And the rest are really important supporting services. They all matter a ton. They're good for stickiness. They're good for adoption, mm-hmm. but nobody just comes in and buys our ops products. Yes. That's why you buy a cloud, you're buying it for compute and data analytics and that stuff. Ops needs to be amazing, but yes. the ops priority should be, how do I drive more consumption of our Kubernetes service? Or how do I drive yes. more of this? That's very different than how do I just make ops best of breed? I don't care. I don't need it to be best of breed. Yeah. Your priority should be driving these other products. So you got to know your landscape. You can't yeah. accidentally just be myopic going, how do I make my thing the best thing it can be? Sometimes that's not your priority. Sometimes your priority is stabilizing it. Sometimes your priority is growing something else. Sometimes your priority is maybe just finding a new market. So I think that's the awesome fun part of this job is that there's no single sort of product strategy for each person, but you have to stop, observe your landscape, talk to stakeholders, understand your corporate priorities, and then reflect that in your, in your backlog. Yeah, no, that's great. Now that gives, uh, yeah, that's, that's actually, that's a really good answer. I love that. Um, so for product lifecycle approach, what are some best practices? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe it's dangerous at Google talking about product lifecycle because everyone thinks we kill everything, but, <laughs> uh, you know, Hey, look, a good product owner says no a lot. A yeah. good product owner does not say yes all the time. That is a mm-hmm. bad product owner, right? Because you mm-hmm. should be saying no, you should be retiring features, mm-hmm. retiring products when necessary. So first half, you have to think of the end sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yes. Think about it, right? How do I take something that's maybe not as strategic anymore? And maybe you still have a lot of customers on it, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter the same to a company. So sometimes we only think about the beginning of the products and you know, there's a lot of creativity and sort of things around the end as well. But as you think of the whole product life cycle, yeah, what is that first experience someone has with your product? Mm-hmm. What is the experience when something goes wrong? Because mm-hmm. product doesn't end with the software, you know, goes through the support experience. Have you trained frontline support? 
what happens when someone calls and says, this doesn't work right? And they say, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's a terrible experience. So have you thought through not just the quality of your software, but the integrations, the support yes. experience, those sort of things, how are you deploying changes and not breaking people, right? If you lose trust with customers, because every other time something breaks, there's, we have all too many choices now. I can, I have almost no brand affinity personally anymore. It feels like, right? Like besides my bank, which is, I guess, hard to change. Yes. There's very few things where I'm like, I only choose X. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't make me happy in my experience, I'm going to bounce around. Yeah. And so we have a ton of choices as consumers now. So are you giving me a great getting started experience? You're giving me a great support experience. Are you not breaking me as you should be? Keep giving me value. Not breaking me doesn't mean don't ever change anything. Yes. My expectation is everything should keep improving. Yes. So you're in this awful, crazy <laughs> spot of you need to keep adding more value. But if you break it, damn it, I'm out of here. What a yes. lot, ton of pressure that is. But that's yes. part of the gig. <laughs> yeah, just when you say that, man, yes, product owner have a tough job. I mean, the customer base is pretty demanding. <laughs> yeah. Things should be getting better and better every, you know, over time. And, uh, and you also cannot break anything. And yes. <laughs> But you got to think of that full life cycle, right? You got to think about this isn't a project anymore. This is a product. Product, This is something that has a start, a middle and an end. And that's okay to talk about the end. It's okay to think about the middle and the stabilization phase. Look, you might have different technologies you use at the beginning. If I'm incubating a product, I'm going to use the most proprietary, fastest to use stuff in a public cloud, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't care if there's lock-in. I'm just proving that this thing makes any sense. I'm going to use serverless. I'm going to use all this stuff. Now, maybe in the middle of my product life cycle, I go, mm-hmm. hey, I don't maybe need this cloud-specific database. I'm going to drop back to something more standard because that's just a more steady state thing. I can find skills for it. I can do whatever. And maybe at the end, I'm going to like, okay, I just want to just jam this onto the cheapest infrastructure possible to strip out all my costs. So your software, your infrastructure, your support staff, your people, it's going to change over the life cycle. Mm-hmm. Good product owner at least keeps that in mind. Doesn't mean you're always doing something about it. Yeah. So you just recognize we're not just always launching. We're doing some other stuff to kind of keep this thing healthy and eventually to retire it. Nice. So Richard, our last question is, so somebody comes to come work for you in your team as a product owner, a new product owner. What, what would you like to see them do? And, you know, obviously you're working with them. Like, what are some advice do you have? I mean, you give, you give tons of advice, but as a rapper advice, what are some important things that you would uh, want to see from them and you know, give them advice if they're coming to work for you? Yeah, first I give my apologies because I'm, I'm weird to work for. <laughs> yes. But uh, no, I mean, look, if I'm hiring someone or if Google's hiring someone or any of us, you know, you're, you're still looking for folks who are a lot of things we've talked about in this whole discussion. Mm-hmm. Are you a learner? Yeah. Are you someone who's going to come in here and invest in the relationship? You're not going to... Mm-hmm you're going to have some courage and you're going to have an opinion. And I want to hear your point of view. You're not just a yes person who comes in and says yes to everybody, or, you know, you're going to come in with opinion. You're going to be observant. You're going to listen. And so, you know, for people who come in, I'm a big believer in also kind of getting a win pretty quickly. I, I, I hesitate if I interview someone and I ask them, what do your first 90 days look like? And they just tell me they want to listen. Mm. That's not bad, (laughs) but that also means you're going to spend three months kind of just observing and like, what are you doing to kind of build, you know, get a mark, build yes. a relationship. Hey, yes. my first 30 days, I'm going to use my product and I'm going to write a blog post on it. I like hearing that. Like yes. you're telling me you're going to invest and you're going to produce. Yes. Right. So what are you going to produce early on? It doesn't mean it'll be awesome. doesn't mean you're going to set the world on fire. You're probably not going to add some amazing feature to the product, but are you going to like make a mark? Yeah. So like what are you going to do to do something in your first 90 days? How are you yes. going to make sure the team knows who you are? Yes. How are you going to make sure that you start to really get yourself in? So I look for someone who's who's ready to jump in. At the same time, they're they're going to you know be a respectful team member and not immediately tell everyone they're wrong and <laughs> they have no context. So, what's your learning culture? What is your ability to produce? Are you you know you going to fit in well from that perspective? I like hiring people with different personalities. My whole team does not look the same at all. So you have people who are quiet and loud, and people who are introspective and extroverts, and that's all great. Yeah. So culture fit is different. Like like Google, we talk about culture ad, like who's an ad to the culture. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean culture fit. We don't all look the same. We're not all going to behave the same. We're all very different. Who adds to our culture? Who brings something to the table? So, you know, if I'm hiring someone, I'm thinking about what are you bringing to this team that makes us different and better, Mm -hmm. right? As much as that can be uncomfortable, because like, oh, that's a person who does this. And we don't have a person who does that. 
That's great though, right? That's going to make us better. So if I'm hiring someone, I'm thinking about what do they bring into the team? How are they going to get started with a bang? How are they going to be someone who immediately tries to build good relationships with stakeholders? And they're very customer centric. If you're doing those things, you're going to succeed in most places as a product owner. Yeah. Richard, this was this was amazing. You gave so many good advice. And and yes, I am I'm sure the listeners will actually gain a tons of uh, knowledge from this and you know, practical tools actually. We we talked a lot about like actionable things. And so thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, doing this podcast with you. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone wants to yell at me or disagree with me, you can uh, find me on Twitter at, at rsaroder or saroder.com for some blog stuff and add me on LinkedIn, whatever. Hopefully, you know, people do provide some feedback. I'm always learning too. I'm wrong about a ton of stuff. So it's great to have people's other opinions on what they're doing in this space. And, and I hope people do reach out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. Yes. We're going to actually add your LinkedIn right there and, and please comment and, and, just let us know what you don't agree with, with, uh, with Richard. There were some really interesting points. So uh, thank you, Richard. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed this video. We'll be sure to come back with more exciting videos on Agile topics.